It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It is a pleasure to welcome two guests to this portion of the show to talk about, or at least use the article that they authored in the conversation as sort of a a guide and a, a post to jump off of for talking about the topic we will be concerned with today. The article is entitled, Putin's Ukraine Invasion, Do Declarations of War Still Exist? And I am joined here on the show with Catherine Frost, a professor of political science at McMaster University, and she writes on issues in political theory, including representation, community, nationalism, and identity, as well as on communications theory and literature and new media. And her works appear in Constellations, the Journal of Political Philosophy and the Journal of Political Power, Morality, and the Canadian Journal of Communication. We're also joined by Rebecca Pullen, and she is a PhD candidate at McMaster University, and she is studying international relations. And her thesis considers mainstream security narratives concerning nuclear weapons as depicted in popular culture uh, with a focus on Western media. So it's a pleasure to have them both here to talk about this article that they co-authored in the conversation. Welcome, ladies. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Well, uh, as we know, the war in Ukraine continues. And, you know, I remember early on that Putin was saying that he wasn't going to back down. And he was going to continue on, even if negotiations were going to continue, which they loosely kind of have to some degree. But now, of course, we're well into this and things are escalating. It's becoming a human humanitarian issue because of the bombings that are going on in several cities in the Ukraine. And uh, they're becoming quite dire for some people. There, have, of course, been many, uh, many deaths of, of civilians. And it certainly is a concern for everyone watching this. Your article do declarations of war still exist why did you guys think it was important to talk about this in in terms of the context of what's going on um i think part of the uh interest in it is that simply how do you know when things have crossed a a certain threshold and gone to a a sort of point of no return in terms of conflict. As it happens, that turned that that point appeared fairly quickly after Putin uh, made his February 24th announcement that there would be an invasion. Um, But even in making that announcement, it struck me that that something important had happened, uh, that he had appealed to articles of the United Nations Charter to say what I'm doing is pretty okay under international law. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a bit of a stretch because uh, as we explained in the article, one of the, the great aspirations of setting up the UN was to kind of put war out of business. <laughs> and so declarations of war should have become obsolete. So it's a kind of an interesting kind of twisted situation we're in where you're not really supposed to have. I mean, it would be a great world in which we say declarations of war don't exist because war doesn't exist. Mm. But we've had essentially that type of thing unfold. And so it seems significant to kind of clarify what are they? What do they what are, what is the in, sort of uh, general intention of issuing a declaration of war? Mm. Um and, and how might it look in the current circumstances? 
Yeah, he's put a he's put a little bit of a twist on this in terms of how he he brought it forward. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, I guess, and, and uh, uh, Rebecca might have um, additional thoughts on this, yep. but it's not that declarations of war are are lovely, friendly things. Right. They are often um, the they're often issued in anger. They're they're often come off like ultimatums. They're not supposed to be a vehicle for threats. Uh, they're not supposed to say, you know, if if any of you interfere. I'll 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 punish you like you've never seen before. Mm. That's not the general intention of them. Uh, so uh, when uh, Putin's announcement we, was used to kind of convey certain messages like that, it was definitely um, outside of what the the laws of war would normally say. Okay, that's fair game. Right, Rebecca, do you have anything? Oh yes, um, thank you, and. Exactly what Catherine was saying, especially about this this issue of um, declarations of war, especially looking more historically, um, definitely sort of balance this really fine line between uh, sharing information about what violence could be coming, but not meant to be a, a vehicle for holding a state or holding individuals hostage. Um, it's meant to be uh, exactly as Catherine was saying, when when things are at basically almost their very, very worst when it comes to diplomatic relations between states, it's meant to be one final chance to hold on to some semblance of communication with the understanding that both sides recognize that war um, is a terrible thing to experience for both sides. And um, ideally, there's um, a hope or at least an impulse that the, the use of a declaration of war would have helped in either averting work entirely um, as sort of like a last digit attempt at this kind of communication, or it would provide sort of in, an internal mechanism, internal steps in how states could continue to communicate with each other and hopefully get to the other side of war as soon as possible if war ended up essentially breaking out um, in spite of the declaration. Mm. Now, your article, of course, does give us some history and looks at at war and looks at the declaration and how um, things over time were declared in terms of a state of war against someone or the warning and, and that declaration saying this is going to be happening imminently. Um, now, you also pointed out there are three things when you make that declaration. I will come back to that in a minute. But uh, Rebecca, just as I have you there, one of the things in your introduction that was mentioned was this this thing about nuclear weapons as depicted in popular culture. How do you mean that? Oh, um, absolutely. So uh, my thesis looks at essentially our most sort of popular, um, uh, mostly American films, essentially entertainment, Hollywood-esque movies, yep. um, where the issue of whether or not a nuclear weapon should be used or is used um, comes up in the narrative of the story. And so I'm trying to investigate what goes into sort of what the what these narratives are telling us about what is important or not important 
in making a decision to use nuclear weapons, what kind of leaders or what kind of individuals um, make these kinds of decisions and what influences these decisions according to our most popular and entertainment-based culture. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, that sounds like it would lead to some very uh, stimulating conversations and maybe troubling ones as well, perhaps. But anyway, I want to come back to the article and, and the history that you talked about there. You, you go right back to Rome and you talk about these special priests that were responsible for calling out the enemy. Um, so, but taking that and bringing it forward... Then we get into the First and Second World Wars. And after the Second World War, of course, we did have that that introduction to nuclear weapons, which everyone saw the destruction that they could bring. And we all know about that it's not just the destruction that they physically can bring, it's the aftermath of the nuclear fallout that can be damaging to people as well. So it's kind of like a no-win situation to go down that road. And hopefully that is part and parcel of what you know, the, the United Nations and the UN Security Council and all of that kind of thing were, were brought forward to do. But it seems because we're hearing a lot about the UN and and the Security Council these days and, and how they, they it doesn't have any teeth anymore. You know, uh, David, you're exactly right in the, the way you've sort of uh, laid it out that that um, I think two things after World War Two, people people were generally exhausted from war mm. and thought there's simply got to be a better way of doing this. And they had the experience of of the way war escalates and spreads and becomes more and more difficult uh, with time. Mm. And so there was this kind of moment of opportunity in the world to try something new. And, and the U.N. was what they tried. And of course, the um, the addition of of nuclear weapons to the mix you know, I'm sure gave a lot more motive to that. Um, you know, has the UN been uh, entirely successful? Obviously not. We can all think of wars that have taken place declared or otherwise mm-hmm. since uh, the birth of the UN. But there ha- it has done a, f- a reasonable job of, shall we say, diverting at least some of the conflicts mm-hmm. that might have gone mm-hmm. Uh, in some pretty dark directions without some support and structure and and guardrails on that process. Um, Is it going to be able to manage every single conflict? Probably not. Um, But the very fact that people are turning to it and saying, well, why can't you do more says that we do actually have pretty high expectations of the UN and it does still operate in a space where we need something to to work. That's what that's what I would say in, in defense of right. of those institutions. Okay, thank you, um, Rebecca. Did you want to add anything? Uh, yes, absolutely. And I think to Catherine's point as well, when it comes to looking at sort of the the trajectory of how declarations of war have morphed internally, but also how they've been perceived externally. Um, now we're looking at sort of the as you say the sort of three. Um, pieces of a declaration of war uh, that we mentioned in the article and how they're sort of dispersed among different uh, governance institutions. And I think that it's important to recognize, as Catherine was saying, we're still looking to the UN and saying, you know, this is supposed to be the avenue, this is supposed to be the body through which we can have these conversations and we can have this sort of, you know, when in doubt, uh, at, at the last moment, 
um, in the last ditch attempt. There's still a body that is always going to exist, at least currently, and uh, through which we can have these conversations and we can go to to have these conversations, which was a big part of what a declaration of war historically was about, about maintaining um, an avenue for um, communication. And so the different pieces of declaration of war have definitely been spread out um, through bodies like the UN. Now, of course, Russia uh, not recognizing Ukraine as a, its own state, saying that it basically is under the control still of, of Russia. So it has the justification to go ahead and, and do this. Does anybody have a comment on that or, or want to uh, fill that in further? Um, just to say it really is an extraordinary claim. Mm. I mean, it, if if the way the international order worked is when one state decided that its neighboring state was no longer sovereign, <laughs> It, it was OK to, to roll tanks across mm. the border. I mean, where would that stop? There's the entire international system, the UN and, and all the other sort of institu- international institutions and international law that goes with it for good or ill is based on the idea that states have their own sort of sovereign order and that there is something kind of sacrosanct about borders and you respect other states. You won't have to agree with them. You don't have to like them, but Mm. you respect other states and you respect their sovereignty. So the, the, you know, it's an, it's an extraordinary claim. Is it entirely unprecedented in the history of, of global conflict? No, but it is, um, it's certainly not something that anyone could look on and, and be indifferent to. It's, it's a very, very big claim. Thank you. Before we go further, you're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guests here on the show are Catherine Frost, a professor of political science at McMaster University, along with Rebecca Pullen, and she is a PhD candidate also at McMaster University. And we have them on the show using the article that they uh, co-authored in the conversation as our launch point to have this discussion. It is entitled Putin's Ukraine Invasion. Do declarations of war still exist? So you can find that on theconversation.ca. And of course, uh, Western nations uh, coming forward to assist with Ukraine uh, can only do so much because Ukraine has is not a member of NATO, for instance, and it's been wanting to join the European Union. Uh, I think that's something also that Putin is, uh, is, is doesn't want to happen. I was thinking about something the other day because I thought we've been hearing so much about the war and so much about what's going on and about, uh, you know, the buildup of what's going on in and around Ukraine, but as well as what NATO is trying to do in terms of get uh, weapons and things uh, for for Ukraine to defend itself. I, I thought we don't really hear much about any option for negotiation or anybody, you know, trying to offer their services for negotiation and trying to resolve this conflict without it going any further. But I believe in your article, you refer to something like that, don't you? Some of the some of the friendly uh, nations that are, are with Russia have offered their services. Uh, we, we didn't we we didn't mention it at the time because, um, at, as you say, this this is a uh, is fairly new and the initial opening days of this war were were so um uh, shocking in a way Mm. um but there have been um sort of efforts um uh france uh the french president macron has tried to keep in touch with putin 
the Israeli uh, prime minister actually went to Moscow and the most, in some ways, uh, somewhat un- unlikely f- uh, 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 figure would be Turkey. Mm. And, and actually, Turkey is going to host a summit between the Ukrainian and Russian foreign ministers on Thursday. So um, there's some hope that that m- might lead. Aside from what it might lead to, and, you know, it would be wonderful if they met on Thursday and, and peace broke out the day after. But um, one of the things that's important is they're at least talking. Mm-hmm. And so credit to all the nations surrounding uh, the conflict who are who are sort of encouraging or creating openings and um, uh, c- creating that sort of slender thread of communication it, it, in there was you've, you've talked about the history of declarations of war. And there were points where there were requirements that you weren't supposed to even declare war and get into a war until you had established a neutral third party that would help arbitrate hmm. um, diplomacy through the war and hopefully towards a peace. Hmm. So we, we, ha- we haven't really kept up with those kinds of practices, but you're absolutely right. It's exactly what needs to happen. Um, and so there are some very small, hesitant moves in those directions, but the important thing is they keep going. My, yeah, my apologies because I, I actually got your article uh, confused with what I was just trying to get my, the latest information on what was going on before we had our conversation. Yeah. And, and that was brought up in another about Turkey, India, China and Israel, um, yes. as well yeah. as the Vatican have offered their mediation services. So uh, yeah. my apologies. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw you under the bus there. <laughs> oh, no, it sounds like a great article. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Rebecca, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, just that. Um, it's really interesting when um, there's that sort of under, a general impression of what a declaration of war uh, would be, which would um, sort of at first blush feel like something that is very violent in and of itself. It can be a, it can be viewed as a very threatening document um, and something that is, you know, really happening at the most um, dangerous point between two or more uh, states. But what's really interesting is that sort of at the heart of it is meant to be this this promise of communication. And it's so interesting to see how that is um, playing out in other avenues, like these uh, uh, third parties offering to be sort of diplomatic points of communication. Um, and also that, you know, just seeing how important it is to view a declaration of war or the, the forms of communication we have today that sort of re- have replaced it in a way as being diplomatic tools first rather than um, tools of violence. Mm. You know, one of the other things I remember hearing about, and I'm, I'm wondering if, if you guys might have a, a comment on this, and, and that is going back to the UN and the Security Council and, and Russia, I heard that Russia has a permanent seat, I believe, on the Security Council, and that because it has a permanent seat on the Security Council, um, and because in the way that was set up, here's what I'm getting to is the way things are set up to work. We talked about how the, you know, the UN 
uh, has helped, but a lot of people are talking about the the lack of uh, ability to do things and not having any teeth anymore. But because Russia has this permanent seat, it would always veto and never allow certain things to go forward. So it, in a way, it null nullifies the ability of the Security Council to take action. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that's really interesting that these things have been set up this way. So do you think in terms of going forward, and hopefully we, you know, we have this resolved quickly and peacefully in the near future, and it doesn't escalate, and, and heaven forbid if it does, and, and it goes global or whatever, uh, that would be just horrible, of course. Um, do you think that they'll, they'll have to start looking at how the UN and the Security Council and these, these bodies are set up and, and, and function? I think you've, um, you've raised a really good uh, point and a really good issue that has been, um, you know, debated and assessed by global governance and um, institutionalist scholars um, since the Security Council came into being and had uh, not only Russia, but a number of states act as permanent members um, with veto power. And, and um, well, I say that's... Uh, it's been a part of how the Security Council operates, having the permanent members with veto power and then members that come in, I believe it's every two years, uh, other states. Um, but this issue of the, the Security Council veto power has definitely been, um, at times, very controversial uh, and something that is debated and studied um, even now and even before now has been an issue of, um, at times, great concern. At times, some um, some scholars see it as a really powerful sort of balancing act to the uh, Security Council members that get voted in every couple of years. Um, so it's definitely a really still a very interesting point for discussion. And perhaps this current um, situation is another opportunity to see how that practice plays out um, on the ground, so to speak. Um, and will definitely raise a lot of interesting um, will bring back a lot of interesting questions that have been asked in the past and raise some really interesting new questions mm. uh, about the, the position of uh, permanent members and their veto power. Right. Thank you. Catherine, do you want to add a final word as we wrap up our conversation? Um, just just on the, the point of uh, Russia at the, the UN, I guess two things. First of all, is veto power or no veto power? It is an enormous global nuclear power. Mm. And so there will be a certain degree to which it will be able to um, make uh, concerted action uh, difficult if if it isn't supportive of that action. So um, there's a certain there's there's the institutionalized fact of the veto. And then there's the real fact of of Russia as a as a a force in the world. Uh, the other thing I would say is, um, you know, it's still in the UN. It's still there. It's still attending. It's still talking. And to to the point that Rebecca made about, you know, why why did we ever have declarations of war? What did they do? Mm. And what they did is they kept us talking rather than shooting. Mm. And to the extent that Russia will still sit in the UN and still talk at um, the, the Security Council, uh, talk is better. And to your point about uh, make sure the negotiations go somewhere, talk is better. And that ultimately, it's, it's, it's what 
uh, a declaration of war is the last talking you do before you do some shooting. Uh, but hopefully we can get back to the talking. And that's what really matters. Right. On that point about uh, Russia being a nuclear power, like you said, and very early on, uh, Putin, of course, did, put, I guess, put the world on a, on alert uh, be, when he quickly brought in or said he was putting his nuclear forces on alert. That was a bit of a shocker, I think, that I don't think anybody saw coming that early on in this conflict. Oh, agreed. Um, agreed. Yeah. I, and um but perhaps uh, a useful reminder that uh, when you get yourself involved in war, we have, mm. as, as, a, as a species, developed some really extraordinarily horrible weapons. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is, again, a reminder of why we should work so hard on not getting into wars if we can avoid them and getting out of them as quick, quickly and peacefully as possible. So. Um, you know, it, it it's a consideration. It's definitely a consideration. I think that's a great place for us to end our conversation. And I want to thank both of you for taking the time to join me on the show and talk about your article, Putin's Ukraine Invasion, Do Declarations of War Still Exist? Which people can go to theconversation.ca to find out and read more on. And uh, ladies, thank you so much and, and all the best in the future. Thank you, David. Thank you all so right. much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. And they are the voices of Rebecca Pullen. She is a PhD candidate on international relations at McMaster University, as well as Catherine Frost, a professor of political science at McMaster University. It was a pleasure to have them on the show. That's this portion of Moment of Truth. Please don't go away. We have more coming up right after these messages. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It's a pleasure to have you joining us here on the show each day. We are Element FM, and my guest here on the show is Mark Winfield, a political scientist and professor of environmental and urban change at York University. We're here to talk to him or use his article that he authored in the conversation as a uh, launch point for our conversation here on the show today. It is entitled, How the War in Ukraine Will Shape Canada's Energy Policy and Climate Change. So it's a pleasure to have Mark here. He's also a co-chair of the faculty's Sustainable Energy Initiative and coordinator of the Joint Master and Environmental Studies Juris Doctor Program offered in conjunction with Osgoode Hall Law School. Mark, pleasure to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Hello, David. Very happy to be here. Well, certainly the article that you have authored here is something I've been hearing a lot about. And although the war in Ukraine has been taking our focus away from the climate crisis, I've also been hearing people talk about how this is the best time for us to look at moving away from, from fossil fuels because of exactly the reason we are seeing develop in Ukraine and the war. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is more pronounced in Europe than mm -hmm. North America, where um, <clears throat> I mean, this was always a subtext around the European energy transitions, their mm -hmm. move towards renewables and to decarbonize their energy systems. Is there there was always a, a consciousness of the the potential vulnerabilities tied up with the relationship with Russia and their dependence on Russian oil and gas, and this, of course, has now turned that into an imperative mm -hmm. uh, that makes the transition essential, not just from a climate change perspective, but now it's it's a geopolitical security issue as well, um, that, that the 
strategy of, of trying to engage with Russia and sort of have such economic ties that, that what is happening was, was unimaginable clearly has failed. Mm. And, and so the Europeans need to reduce their dependence on fossil fuels, not just for security, for climate change reasons, but for security reasons as well. Yeah. Now, I do remember hearing these questions coming up and and one of the ways they were trying to bring pressure upon Russia was to stop uh, purchasing oil from Russia. However, I know now we have had some action towards that, but I think that uh, the Great Britain said they want to do it. Uh, is it. I'm not sure if it's Britain or France or one of the countries there saying they will, but not right away. They're going to sort of stagger that because of their dependence, like you were saying. Yeah, the, the United Kingdom was saying um, <clears throat> toward by the end of the year, uh, mm. the Americans have moved more rapidly and it mm. is a significant portion of their energy supply. But in Europe, it's, it's networked more tightly. I was just actually watching <clears throat> the Prime Minister of Norway being interviewed by in on the BBC about this very question. And even he, as an energy supplier, was 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 hesitant about how far Europe could go down that path, that they're worried in the short term about the economic impacts of of, uh, <clears throat> of of a complete embargo. But at the same time, it was pointed out to him that, you know, effectively these energy imports are financing Russia's war against the Ukraine. Right. <laughs> yes, it, it's, uh, it's a real quagmire once we get into it and start looking at all the ways that we are connected, you know, globally in so many ways. You know, your article points out that Russia is uh, one of the largest producers of, of crude oil, 13% of the world's oil, I think it was. Yeah, yeah they're number two pr- producer. And I was thinking about that and thinking, okay, that's a huge amount. But I'm, I, it made me think about, is there, I don't know if this has anything to do with their desire to expand and, and bring Ukraine under, into their fold again for other natural resources because of the, the idea of moving away from fossil fuels? Um, I'm not sure how much they've made that connection. I mean, Russia has tended to hang out with the Saudi Arabians on mm. question climate change. Um, but it is, I mean, I think there are, there are two layers to what Russia is doing in Ukraine. One is, is this, this sort of personal mission on Vladimir Putin's part to reassemble the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the second is that Ukraine is very resource rich. Um, we are seeing worries starting to emerge now about, um, Uh, food supply, because of course the Ukraine is is one of the global bread baskets, mm. um, and indeed it would uh, further strengthen Putin's geopolitical hand if he has control over those food resources, especially as well as this this large sort of oil reserve. I mean, I I don't get the impression. I think the Russians, the Saudis, and sometimes parts of Alberta think they're going to be the last producers out in terms of oil and don't mm. think forward that way. But it is definitely a, a geopolitical power issue is, is part of what's playing out here. Mm. So what's the latest you're hearing at this point in terms of uh, to think about moving away from fossil fuels and, and, you know, becoming less dependent? Because if we continue to do this, it's obviously going in the opposite direction to what is needed for the climate and for this planet to sustain us. It's, it's still a, a mixed bag. I mean, on, on paper, I mean, Canada is now, now has quite ambitious targets in terms of uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. 
with the implication of reducing fossil fuel use. I mean, we're now committed to reducing our emissions by 40 to 45 percent by 2030, which isn't that far off. Mm -hmm. And then reaching net zero by 2050. Indeed, the federal government said we're aiming for net zero in the oil and gas sector by 2050. Right. So on paper, we're committed to that kind of pathway. Um, but we're in this position of being a very geopolitically secure source of fossil fuels. So we're hearing voices that are saying, well, you know, shouldn't we increase production both from the oil sands in Alberta? And I think you'll hear this too in relation to liquid natural gas in British Columbia, even though those are, those are very carbon intensive fuel sources. Um, on the European side, as you're saying, I think, I think there's, there's a, a short term and a long term. Um, in the very short term, uh, again, I was leading the Prime Minister of Norway is relatively progressive about these things, saying, well, we, you know, we're facing the possibility we're going to have to burn more coal in the very short term. Um, but in the longer term, this just, just increases the pressure um, to decarbonize and reduce dependence on imported fossil fuels. Uh, so in the longer term, it would probably be seen as as helpful from a climate perspective, assuming we get to some kind of resolution of, of the immediate situation first. Yeah. As I think about this situation, the irony of what we're talking about here with having to maybe start burning more coal, uh, becoming more carbon intensive, this is also a war that we are trying to fight against the climate in terms of you know, keeping it a, a viable place for us to live and sustain ourselves. And even though it's a much, much slower war that is not immediately in our face, it's still a war that needs our attention and is and should be just as important as anything else that we are dealing with right now. Yes. And it's, I mean, you know, there's the nature of wars of this kind, of this scale, as they do, they do recalibrate agendas. Um, and it is deflecting attention from the climate change agenda in the short term, um, <clears throat> but may, you know, I, one, one hopes as we come out on the other side, is that the Europeans are kind of already there. They've made this connection between energy security and decarbonization with, with good implications on the climate. Um, <clears throat> other places, uh, it's, it's gonna, it is going to complicate things because um, <clears throat> while this transition happens and hopefully continues to move forward, um, there are other places that are going to emphasize their, their roles as geopolitically stable and secure sources of energy and who are going to have their arguments against a transition and decarbonization reinforced in the mm. short term. Yeah. So, you know, this, is, this is part of the disruption that is embedded in the nature of this, this event. Yeah. Is it, is it so disrupts the international agenda. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, it, you know, it's it's funny. We've had so many it, it seems like these these things have been flying at us recently. Uh we think about the American election and the turmoil that was created there, then we got COVID, that threw the world into another turmoil and now we've got this one. It, it, there's you know, there's this escalation of 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 things that are being thrown at us and, you know, in, in some ways making us think about so much and about our future as well. 
Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, you could add even our freedom convoys mm. to all yeah, of that as well, right. <laughs> um, which again is something, you know, completely outside of our, our uh, at least many modern political experience in Canada. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, what these things are, are challenges to fundamental institutional structures around democracy. I mean, that in a sense is part of what Putin, Mr. Putin is doing too, mm-hmm. is he's, mm-hmm. he's challenging a rules-based international order. He's challenging the notion that um, democratic governance and the rule of law is the appropriate way to run things, which mm-hmm. in some ways Mr. Trump was doing at times as well. Um, so it is it is a real test of, of institutions and their ability to, to, to deal with these challenges. And test of political leadership as well uh of leaders to be able to respond appropriately um to to uphold sort of what are you know we're now we're now into conversations about core values about governance Mm -hmm. um and their ability to uphold those values because in a sense what mr putin is doing is is a very fundamental challenge right so to rules rules-based international order and and indeed the value of democratic governance right you're listening to Moment of Truth. This is Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. And my guest here on the show is Mark Winfield. He is a political scientist and professor of environmental and urban change at York University. We are using the article that he authored in the conversation as our launch point for our discussion today. It is entitled, How the War in Ukraine Will Shape Canada's Energy Policy and Climate Change. Mark, uh, I'm, I'm just wondering about there's the nuclear uh, situation about nuclear power. That's something, and not only you know, as soon as we say nuclear, we also think of the the unfathomable idea of nuclear war, but which Putin has also uh, you know mentioned by bringing his nuclear uh, arsenal on alert, as he pointed out a couple of weeks ago. But I'm also wondering about now with this whole idea of dependency on fossil fuels and maybe the way things might change. Two issues with pipelines. One with the 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 the, the one with Biden, and and also with um, Trudeau. Well, I mean, it seems the our federal Mr. Trudeau is is un, unequivocally committed to Trans Mountain, no matter what mm. happens. Because mm. um, I think the last figure I heard is now twenty one billion dollars. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> which is which seems to me mad. Um, I think I think in in Canada's case. Um, it's, it's unclear if, if at the end of the day, at least in the short term, although there's sort of voices saying, well, we've got to reopen the conversation about Keystone XL. We've got to reopen the conversation about Energy East, excuse me, which would run from Alberta to New Brunswick to Irving Oil and then allow for shipment. There's another, there are other voices saying, well, well, it's, it's unclear at this stage where this is going to go. Hmm. That is the, the global oil situation. Um, uh, you know, is is it is what's happening relatively short term, especially the Europeans are saying, you know, within the current year, we might have to do some stuff, which we don't want to do about burning coal and finding fossil fuels from other places. But saying in the longer term, we're still in the climate change and decarbonization game so that the market that would justify the kinds of investments to build large long-term infrastructure i don't think is is there yet even the short-term price of oil going way up you got to be looking a decade out if you're thinking about building something like a pipeline um if there were to be some kind of a surge i've i've heard folks 
more connected to the industry saying, well, they probably move oil by rail um, mm. rather than try and build new pipelines. <clears throat> the nuclear question is a bit different. We could talk about that a little bit if you want. Yeah, please. Um, there, I don't think this changes the situation very much for Canada. Um, you know, we have a lot of hydroelectric resources and our, our his experience with nuclear, of course, has been, it's, it's turned out to be extremely expensive. Mm. Um, so it's, it's not clear. There's some discussions around decarbonization that suggest there could be an expanded role, but at this stage, um, no one's really moving there because in part of the history of cost overruns and other issues. In Europe, the situation is, is more complicated in the sense that, you know, th this has come up that, that, um, you know, uh, if we're trying to reduce dependence on fossil fuels and expansion of nuclear is a possibility, or at least a slowing down of the phasing out of nuclear in Europe. I mean, it's something the International Energy Agency has hinted at. The issue there, though, I think, is, I mean, again, beyond the extraordinarily ugly economics of new, new build nuclear, um, is that, that you know, the Europeans are being presented with this, this very direct set of reminders about why it was they were phasing out nuclear power. Mm. I mean, we've had the Chernobyl site overrun mm -hmm. by the Russians yeah. and, and very serious questions arising about what was going on there, about it being cut off and on backup power and mm -hmm. people having to work at gunpoint. Um, we had the, the operating nuclear plant in Ukraine, which was the site of a, a firefight and again was overrun by the Russians and mm -hmm. operators having to work at, at gunpoint. Um, you know, very serious, incredible expressions of concern from the director of the International Atomic Energy Agency um, about security, like that they were had lost data that they were they normally would be receiving from those facilities. And of course, you hinted at you know Putin's not very veiled references to nuclear weapons, and mm -hmm. there is quite a lot of discussion about the possibility of the use of a tactical nuclear weapon in the Ukraine by the Russians. Oh. All of this reminds the Europeans, like, what? this is why we were not going into nuclear. Yeah. Um, so how that debate will shake out in Europe, I think, is, is also a very open question, that on the one hand, in the short term, there's a certain appeal, but um, <clears throat> what's happening also reminds Europeans of all the reasons it's large parts of Europe, Germany especially, uh, were making this choice that we're, we're, we're not going there. Mm. The other thing, of course, is the prices that we are seeing at the pumps, which are just going crazy uh, across the country. Uh, so the everyday person is, of course, being, being directly affected by what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, on the one hand, I, <clears throat> one, one understands the, the distress consumers are feeling. Um, and I think we need to be particularly sensitive to, to those who are at the lower end of the income scale and mm -hmm. for whom, you know, gasoline and fuels are, are about essential mobility and, and ability to make a living. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but on the other hand, I mean, compared to the price that the people of Ukraine are paying, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. If all we're having to do is pay a bit more for gas, I think we're getting off pretty lightly. Um, <laughs> Good that point. said, um, I do think governments are going to have to be more vigilant than they have been for a long time about gasoline prices and fuel prices and being conscious of the possibility of the old problem of, of war profiteering. Mm -hmm. um, you know, We may need to regulate 
uh, fuel prices in ways that we haven't done for a very, very long time to make sure that the, the relationship between what we're what is being paid for the the source material and what we're paying at the pump mm-hmm. is you know is is reasonable because the moment you know what's being pumped today is based on oil that was bought bought and paid for many many months ago yeah not, yeah. not today's oil world oil price so one of the other things that I wrote down when reading this over and thinking about what we have seen in the last uh, number of years with COVID now and I don't mean to diminish anything that is happening right now in the Ukraine or or take away from the fact that we should be doing what we're doing in terms of helping Ukraine. And this is not meant in that way. All I'm looking at is how the governments of Western uh, countries and countries around the world have come to the aid of uh, of Ukraine. And also during the crisis of, and this was pointed out, it's not just me saying this, but I've heard other people say this, during covid uh, the governments could act quickly. And also now during this situation, we see countries acting quickly, coming to rescue, donating, uh, you know, all kinds of things, money and, and you know, reallocating things. And I'm just thinking, okay, so we've now seen two examples of where the governments can act to do something. And, and it made me think about, okay, so why can we not then do the same around the climate? Well, I think I think that's a good question. I mean, I mean, there are very long answers to that. I mean, part of part of what we're going through, in some ways, is is a reminder of how important. Gov- why do we have governments? Mm. Is is almost you know, both COVID and now the situation in Ukraine have kind of reminded us of these fundamental functions of government in terms of security, um, but also the ability to mobilize resources and organization on the scale that was needed to deal with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that does open a different conversation from the one in many ways that we've been in for the last 40 years, which is about minimizing the role of government in society and, and minimizing expectations of government. And we've now had these very power, two powerful lessons that, that you need, you need government mm. Um, ideally, ones that are run competently mm. and and the, whose leadership is is determined democratically. Right. Um, but you know, it does beg that question that if we can respond to these kinds of things, surely we can mobilize around a problem like climate change, which is which is also a very profound threat. Yeah. Although in a longer time time frame, but yeah. although we're now we're now living. You know, climate change is no longer a theoretical projection in a yes. model. Yes. It's our lived experience. The floods, the fires, the extreme weather, atmospheric rivers, all of that. Um, we're in a different space. And I think I think the conversation may shit once we're past the immediate crises of Ukraine and COVID. Um, I think those conversations may shift about what our expectations are. Of, of what we can do societally and what governments can do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because I still, I still see and that, that idea that this, that we're living it now is absolutely correct, but we have to remember that it is our children and the generations to follow, or they're going to have to live with 
the fallout of this from what we're doing and the inaction that we're going to be taking. It will it's be there. Gonna get worse. It's going to get worse and they're going to have to, to deal with it. And that, that's something we should be thinking about. And I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day as I was walking down the street and I still see people sitting there with their cars idling. <laughs> and I went, is it not registering? Is it not getting through to people that this every time you leave that car idling when you're just sitting there for a few minutes it, it's still contributing to this we have to be more aware of it yeah you're left wondering something what does it take yeah that's um, right you know that we've we've now had i mean probably some ways bc more than anywhere else but um you know very upfront experiences of the consequences mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and it's it's a you know, combination of making that connection, but also then people also do have to feel that there are, there's something they can do, which is the other, the other piece that it's not so huge a problem that it's simply, is simply on, on you, you, I as an individual can't do anything. Right. Um, you need to give people ways and there are lots in which they can contribute because you know, it's going to be, there is no magic bullet. It's going to be mm-hmm. a lot of incremental actions. Right. We're going to get us there in terms of climate change. Yeah. Well, you know, mentioning BC, I, I was out there uh, last summer and uh, I can say that um, in Vancouver, there certainly were a lot of electric vehicles on the road. I mean, I couldn't believe how many I saw. It was incredible. And I think I heard that mentioned somewhere in an article or on a news story. Um, there was a lot of electric vehicles on the road. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the... I think it's it's kind of a symbolic tipping point mm. that, that is you start to see that prevalence. And again, it's precisely something that is is tangible and doable mm. at, a, at a personal level. I mean, the price gaps are still there, although those as mm-hmm. the major manufacturers move more and more into EVs. I think those those price differentials between internal combustion and electric vehicles will, will start to shrink significantly. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's something um is something people can do that's tangible and significant. Right. Um, it's it's you know, the other big thing of doing energy ret- energy efficiency retrofits on your house. Right. Or one is very tangible, yep. cumulatively, mm-hmm. hugely important. Right. Um, so there are things you can do. Um, it just it's a question of of making people aware of them and also giving them the tools and the means. Right. And. In fairness, the federal government these days does does seem willing to spend money, so I say almost too much, um, around these things and, and helping people with, with the costs of making these transitions. Right. Mark, we'll have to leave it there. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the show and talk about your article, How the War in Ukraine Will Shape Canada's Energy Policy and Climate Change. And I want to wish you all the best. And uh, thank you so much once again for being on the show. Well, thank you very much. All right. You take care. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. That is Mark Winfield. He is a political scientist and professor of environmental and urban change at York University. He is also the co-chair of the faculty's Sustainable Energy Initiative and the coordinator of the Joint Master and Environmental Studies Juris Doctor Program offered in conjunction with the Osgood Hall Law School. He has published articles, book chapters, and reports on a wide range of environmental, economic, energy, and climate change law and policy topics. You can check out his article entitled How the War in Ukraine Will Shape Canada's Energy Policy and Climate Change at theconversation.ca. That's our show for today. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth. 
each and every day right here on Element FM. See you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.